You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff from Atavist. I am joined in this audio studio by Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer from Long Form. I think if we record enough intros with Evan, eventually he'll confess to a murder at one of them. <laughs> we're, on a, we're on our fifth take here and it's the most animated I've ever seen. Evan, We're about to crack Evan. Evan, uh, who did you kill and who did you interview this week? This week I talked to Sue Dominus from the New York Times Magazine where... Uh, she has written a wide variety of pieces from profiles to uh, these great sort of like science psychology stories about illness and uh, a pair of twins. Uh, there was a story that was uh, a few years ago that a lot of people, I think, yeah, remember. Yeah, totally unforgettable story. Yeah. Our sponsor this week, Tiny Letter. It's a simple yet so pleasurable way to start an email newsletter. Uh, If you want to take some pleasure in in keeping in touch with those around you instead of it being a uh, burden and chore, check them out. Tiny letter from MailChimp. Fifth take take is when we get the new adjectives, too. Fifth take magic here. Um, Here is Evan and Susan Dominus. Hi, Sue. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Thanks for coming on. Um, Do you go by Sue? I do. Oh, Susan is the byline. Susan. Yeah. Um, you are currently, uh, was it a contributing editor or contributing writer at the Times Magazine? I think they call me a staff writer. Oh, so you are a staff writer? Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Okay. I, maybe I'm a contributing writer, to be honest. Now I can't remember now that you mention it. We don't need to get into the fine okay, distinctions good. necessarily. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure that... Uh, I have health insurance. That's all I want to say. <laughs> uh, that, that, that is a not so fine distinction, actually, yeah. from uh, from... Freelancing, but um, but actually wanted to to just like wind the path to how you got there first, and then there's like a bunch of stories that I want to talk about. I don't know if we'll get to them all, um, but I was particularly uh, interested to discover that at a certain point in your career, you went to edit the Nerve.com magazine. Yeah, I don't know why I wanted to start there, but it just it just like brought back all these memories of sort of like late '90s. Dot com. I knew your byline as a long-form writer, and then to find out that you had edited this magazine associated with that website was fascinating. Well, it's funny because actually being in this office, I've been having all sorts of nerve flashbacks because that was mm. the last time that I worked someplace sort of, you know, lofty and funky and with lots of cool-looking, 
young people. Really? So so first, where did you start out in, in journalism? Well, I started out as an editor. I started as Glamour, uh-huh. uh, an editor, editorial assistant at Glamour. And I went from there to the American Lawyer, um, where I was also I made my way up to associate editor. Uh-huh. And then I went to New York Magazine, where I was a senior editor. I was pretty young at the time, like 25, 26. And I was editing the, the, uh, the Intelligencer, otherwise known as the Gossip Column. But yeah, I was yeah. also being thrown and assigning cover stories and um, doing a lot of, uh, you know, some editing of really strong writers and also lots of rewriting because, you know, when you're a young editor, you're starting out with young people and and that was incredibly fun. And then I burned out. <laughs> and so I went to Yale Law School for a year on a journalism fellowship. Oh, really? Did you, So did you burn out because of the hours and the or, or was it more that you got tired of fixing other people's writing? Uh, I was still too chicken to become a writer. I thought I was destined to be an editor forever. I got burned out on, I think I just got burned out on New York. You know, when you edit like a gossip column about New York City, you can actually get a little bit ill (laughs) about the culture. And I kind of did. And I had a friend who was at law school and, okay, it was a boyfriend. And he was madly in love with the material. And um, I was curious to check it out and see what I thought myself. Um, uh, And I'd actually done a lot of, because I'd been at the American Lawyer, I'd actually done a lot of editing of, you know, stories about intellectual property and things like that. I was curious to see where that would take me. Yeah. They intended it to be a fellowship for people who were going to continue with journalism. And it was very clear um, as soon as I got to that uh, program that I was, I thought more like a journalist than a lawyer and I wasn't cut out for it anyway, but Ooh. I had, a, it was an incredible experience and I learned a huge amount. And then at the end of it, I, um, I killed myself to get, uh, to talk myself into a job at the Wall Street Journal, uh, their international edition, I actually got a job as a, I was going to be their advertising correspondent based in Brussels. Is there a lot of advertising based that comes out of Belgium? No, it's more that it's centrally located. So you're traveling all over Europe and there you are in Brussels. And uh, I was getting ready to move to Brussels and then the nerve job, I heard about it. And it actually was such a dream job. I just couldn't walk away from it. It was because I actually am a huge lover of fiction and of, you know, um, just the essay, the personal essay, and uh, the idea that there was this new venture that was going to allow for all sorts of creative nonfiction. Um, you know, at, at New York, it's it was... There's, there's tons of great writing in New York Magazine, but it was all reporting for the most part. There yeah. was Every once in a while, they'd do a special issue about New York, and you could reach out to your favorite fiction writers or your favorite poets and ask them to write something beautiful. But um, that was pretty rare. Whereas Nerve, that's what it was all the time. It was creating something entirely new, and we were going to be publishing fiction, which is – it's not my first love as a writer. I, I can't do it. I don't know how to write fiction, but it's certainly my first love as a reader. Hmm. So, um, And the subject material seemed fun and yeah, we rich. Should, we should probably say for – People may not even. I mean, nerve oh, yeah. still exists, but it, we used to say it was a magazine about sex and culture. I guess we didn't feel comfortable just saying it was a magazine about sex, <laughs> and it wasn't. It was it was a magazine about really the world around us, and sex is a, was a recurring theme. I yeah, and the website had already. I mean, the website was sort of like a little bit in the dot com boom. I mean, it wasn't like a like a tech company per se, but it was it was sort of like a new thing, like a web magazine it was taking off it was taking off were you worried that when you went to that that like a return to traditional journalism would be impossible at that point if you sort of jumped into this new world both because it was new and because it was you know the subject matter was sex 
Well, I did. It's funny. I remember asking Caroline Miller, who was the editor of New York at the time, something about taking this job at this magazine, sort of, sort of a, sort of a sex magazine. You know, do you think that would ever stop me from, I don't know, getting a job at the New York Times? I think I even hmm. used those words. And she said, "Look, if you know any place that wouldn't hire you because you worked at Nerve, chances are you don't really want to work there." And sure enough, it did not stop the New York Times from hiring me. Apparently, which not. I am grateful. Yes, um, and you know, we did. I am proud of the work that we did at Nerve. Some of it was my colleagues there were uh, people like Emily Newsbaum, who's you know now uh, wow, yeah. the TV critic at the Has New Yorker. Has been on this podcast. I, she's yeah, she's fantastic, and. Um, you know, Ross Martin, who's kind of a big deal at MTV now, and, uh, you know, some other people who are, oh, Genevieve Field, who's a colleague uh, right now of mine at the Times Magazine. Obviously, Genevieve was the co-founder of Nerve, and she's filling in at the Times Magazine as an editor. She's a terrific writer as well. Um, it was a really creative, inspiring group of people. I loved being around their energy, and that was really I mean, the people at New York were fantastic, too, and many of them have gone on to do great things. But there's definitely a different energy at Nerve that was sort of just, you know, the same people who are coming up with story ideas were also literally like illustrating, you know, art for the stories we were running or coming up with new ways to integrate the web and print and, you know, ways that at the time were kind of interesting. It was, yeah. it was really fun. Yeah. You published a, a really fantastic Jeff Dyer. I'm a huge Jeff Dyer I fan. love Jeff Dyer. His yeah. Jeff the one about Dyer hotel essay. sex, yeah. that one. Yeah. yeah. It was he in was... his collection, his most recent collection, I think. I remember. I yeah. It was, I emailed Dwight Garner after he reviewed it to say, with that random nerve, I edited that story. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah. proud. So were you were you also writing or were you I really you, wasn't. It's funny when I think I mean every once in a while I remember I wrote a personal essay about the experience of being an editor at Nerve and um, just the way that people opened up to you. Like you would, I would tell people what I did for a living and then people would just, like tell me the most incredible things that they'd been clearly dying to say their whole lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wrote about that phenomenon because um, it was a lot. It was a lot actually. People were telling you crazy shit all the time. Um and I wrote another personal experience about uh, another personal essay about it was called My Therapist's Thong. <laughs> and it was about um, it's still I have to say it's one of the, to me one of the most entertaining things I've ever written. It was about being in my therapist's office and uh, seeing a pair of thong underwear on the floor and about <laughs> the various fascinating interpretations that uh, came with that story when I told it to people. <laughs> but mostly I was just editing uh, and even though I wanted to be a writer, I was 30, and I still wasn't a writer at all. I was still editing full time. And then what happened? Um, what happened was my dear friend, Ariel Kaminer, with whom I'd worked at New York Magazine, had a lives column fall through at the last minute uh-huh. at the Times Magazine. magazine. She's working yeah. at the Times Magazine, a story, ate my my uh, my friend A.G. Jacobs was supposed to write a piece for her about being a Jew who loved Christmas. This was before the spate of articles about the very same subject. But A.G. backed out at the last minute, and Ariel probably came up with the idea in the first place because she knows that I am a Jew who loves Christmas. It's like a big running joke. And so I said, let me just write it. And so I wrote that, and it worked out nicely, and that was um, my first piece in the Times Magazine. And from there, while I was a full-time editor at uh, Nerve, I ended up pitching and then writing my first cover story for the New York Times Magazine, which was, again, I swear it was early, but it was a cover story about um, kids who have severe food allergies. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I, I went back and revisited that piece. And, yeah. and, uh, but I remember I, it from the time. 
for some reason it had a, something of an impact back then and and it was but it was not just it was very much about the sort of psychology and neuroscience of the correlation between anxiety and food allergies and, and anxiety is still a subject that interests me a lot and I feel like I come back to that and to neuroscience with some regularity yeah it feels like it had some echoes in this much more recent piece about these teenage girls cheerleaders who yeah developed this Psychosomatic sort of syndr- syndrome. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of the same theme. But before it, we'll, we'll, we'll definitely get to that piece because it's, it, I was really intrigued by it. But did you, so you say, okay, I want to, I'm an editor, I'm going to start pitching stories. But those early stories, when I looked at them, they're ambitious in all these different directions. So there's that piece. And then isn't that when you did a piece about Afghanistan? There was some time. There was a time. uh, The way it worked is, I did the cover story for the Times Magazine uh, right before I got um, laid off from Nerve because they ran out of money at the time. Uh I was editing a very expensively produced and lavish print magazine. That was what I was brought on to do: was to create the print magazine. Did you know the end was coming when it came? Oh, lots of people were being laid off at the time. Yeah, Yeah, it was fine. I mean. It was. It was not. You know, it was. It was too bad, and it was a great experience. I was sorry to see it end, but I was thinking about making a jump to being a writer. I started seeing my now husband at the time. He's a full. He was then a full time writer, and he really encouraged me. I was. I'd basically been chicken about mm-hmm. it, so I got fired from Nerve, and um, I was incredibly lucky because the editor of New York Magazine was still Caroline Miller. And she liked my cover story for the Times Magazine so much about food allergies that she signed me on as a contributing writer at New York, like with almost no experience writing for New York. I think she was down a few writers at the time. So I had a contract from New York as soon as I left Nerve, and I had a contract from Glamour where I had these very strong relationships. And so I was able to make a living um, as a full-time, you know, writing full-time for them. And then Caroline very graciously allowed me to continue writing freelance for the Times magazine. Uh-huh. That so seems unusual. It was incredibly generous of her. Yeah. yeah. Usually those two would try to exclude each other. Yeah. I think she really was down a few writers and I was able to negotiate it and she just didn't have a problem with it. Um, and I, I had to do a certain number of pieces per year for New York. I think as long as I did those, she was okay. Um, and that was a really, really fun time being full time freelance and doing such different kinds of stories for different people. And and when you ju- when you jumped into that, did you once you you said you were you know hesitant that you'd felt held yourself back from becoming a writer? But once you went to, did you feel this is it? I f- I found it. I know what I'm doing. Or at the at the beginning, did you feel like I don't know if I can make this work, or these stories are too hard to find? Well, one thing that happened is um, I quit. I was I left Nerve, I think, in July, and then I took August off, and then I came back, and my first week of work, or maybe my second week of work, was September 11th, 2001. You know, so I had just it was my second week of work as a staff writer, a contributing writer at New York Magazine, and then that happens like the biggest, obviously, story of New York in the century, and so I um, didn't have an assignment. I just remember leaving my house and walking downtown. You know, and thinking like you must come home with something, you know, and I was just filing whatever material I could find to John Homans, who's a much beloved editor at New York Magazine, and um, I don't know that they ran some of what I had, or I can't remember if they ran or not, but I remember being extremely, I mean, even amidst 
what was such an important historical moment, the narcissism of the writer, I was desperate to hear what John thought, you know, and the feedback was good. And I felt like, okay, I can, I think I can do this, you know. Um, So, and then I just took off from there. And I really did love doing not that particular story, of course, but just, I was very happy to be writing. It felt like the right thing for me, for sure. Mm -hmm. And then you, I was sort of hinting at earlier, you had written uh, some more like really big pieces for the Times magazine around that in that time period. So my first, let's say if you, if 9-11 was my first day of work in a way, um, I went to Afghanistan, I think it was a year later because it was, um, you know, I was writing about sort of the story I did in Afghanistan was about young women returning to school for the first time post-Taliban or going to school for the first time. Um, And again, my old friend Ariel Kaminer um, and Adam Moss, who was then the editor of the Times magazine, really took a chance on me in assigning me such an ambitious story with so much ambitious travel. I had done some some form of that kind of reporting. Um, actually, weirdly, when I was at Yale Law School, I talked to Cindy Levy, the then editor and current editor of Glamour magazine. I asked her if I could go to, uh, to Albania to cover the Kosovo refugee crisis because mm-hmm. the young women who I was seeing come across the border on CNN looked so much like glamour readers. They could really relate to the international aspect of the story. So I had done that um, and I had been to Eritrea um, with a Yale law professor, which was at the time at war with Ethiopia. So mm-hmm. Ariel knew that and I think felt like I could probably handle the trip. And um, it was an incredible experience. And I worked with the uh, unbelievably talented and inspiring photographer, Lindsay Adario, who was there with me. So it was, an, I mean, I was very lucky and I had the benefit of Carlotta Gall, who's the, you know, New York Times person in Kabul. Yeah. And did that give you any itch towards being a foreign correspondent or sort of yeah, I did. I came back and I told Terry Maserati I wanted to take Arabic. And he was like, good for you. We're not paying for it. <laughs> um, so that was too bad. But I did think I would do more of it. And I you know, I lived in France um, for seven months with my husband at some point. And I did, uh, I did a story about Zacharias Moussaoui's mother. He was you know, one of the supposed uh, possible hijackers who never actually got on the plane. That was a crazy story. His bro- I did I had- I didn't remember his brother like wrote a book saying basically like he's a terrible person he probably did it and the mother was kind of like disowned the other brother but that whole family dynamic was fascinating mm-hmm. I mean, his brother was also an extremist and mostly what I took away from that story was that there was an incredible strain of mental illness running through the family from mm-hmm. the father who was absent to the sister who's in the story who was you know clearly I mean schizophrenic and um and and Zacharias Masari himself clearly had some psychological um, illness, mental yeah. illness. Yeah. When you go into doing that kind of reporting, and that's in that piece, the idea that these people are are mentally uh, ch- having difficulty in yeah, different they're ways. Ill. They're definitely yeah, mentally Ill. Ill. Yeah. And uh, from where do you draw the uh, the the authority? Like, do you feel comfortable going into those situations? Because it happens later. I feel like in this teenage girl's Mm -hmm. story Mm -hmm. where basically you're saying even asking them questions that are you're saying this is psychosomatic illness you're you're kind of like that's the conclusion you've drawn right but that's not the conclusion they've drawn and they don't realize that in the case of the kids in Leroy this was a story about a bunch of young women um very all-american looking girls in upstate New York who all started exhibiting these very severe twitching symptoms and I went up there actually almost sure that this was a story about um, a phenomenon known as pandas in which some people who have strep develop um, uh, 
symptoms of obsessive compulsive disorder. Mm. I'd once tried to do a story about this phenomenon for New York Magazine. Mm. It's controversial. Not all doctors believe in it, but there are many people at, for example, the National Institutes of Health who do believe this is a phenomenon. Um, and I thought, oh, I know what this is. This is going to be so interesting when I point this out. But as soon as I started talking to the young women, all of them started talking about trauma. Yeah. And you and and I, I I myself would not have drawn the conclusion that this was a psycho that this was mass psychogenic illness, except that the neurologist who was working with all of them had come to that conclusion herself. So I did not feel that I personally was making a diagnosis. I certainly. Um, believed it to be true as soon as I started talking to them and observing them. But I, yeah, I don't know that I would have felt comfortable myself making, leading readers to that conclusion if I hadn't had some medical backup for it. Yeah, yeah. Let's just dig into that story a little bit because there was like multiple things going on. One was there was a media frenzy around these people. Yeah. There's some kind of mystery illness that's spreading and like towns, other towns like canceling sporting events. Against and it's probably, teams. there must be something in the water or the air. There's a chemical spill. Aaron Brockovich is getting involved. Yeah. Dr. Drew is has them on his show every other second, you know, asking them if they think it's, is there a cancer cluster in your town because of that oil spill years ago? I mean, really, in, really inflationary, irresponsible reporting I thought and how did you first how did you get in under the spotlight of attention that was already there and obviously you you got close to them I mean you interviewed them and you were you're spending time with the the kids even you know w- watching them in their environment and how they did twitch and that sort of thing how did you get in when there was so much attention around it already it was really hard I mean I I will say that I think the families were feeling like they weren't getting the medical help that they wanted. So to some degree, they were eager to talk to the press. And I remember saying to people, you know, I'm sure that you feel that the whole story is not really getting out and I have all the time in the world and I have all the space to tell it. So let's talk about what's really going on. Like, what do you think the news media is getting wrong? What do you think has been inaccurately reported? And even the families who... You know, there were families who thought, oh, it's not the chemical spill. It's got to be this pandas thing. Or people thought, it's not this pandas thing. It's got to be, you know, this oil spill that happened. Um, and some people thought it was clearly, um, you know, I mean, there was, I remember I spent some time with a, a public figure in town. I don't think I quoted him, so I won't reveal who it was. But he was desperate to tell me all about how complicated and sad and tragic some of the family lives were of these girls because he wanted to... He didn't want the world to think that the town was toxic. He wanted people to understand that, unfortunately, there are some very sad stories here that are leading to some psychosomatic symptoms. Mm-hmm. But it's not the town. So people, some people were really like forthcoming about what they thought was going on. Yeah. And it seemed like, did you sort of have to have that delicate conversation with the subjects themselves, you know, to ask them what do you think about the possibility that this could be actually the result of the trauma you've experienced in your life? Um, You know, for a lot of them, it was hard to... Look, it's such a strange phenomenon, mass psychogenic illness or any kind of um, psychogenic illness at all is... You know, I remember interviewing this young one, one young woman named Chelsea Dumars who'd been through a lot. And her twitch was quite severe. It was a head twitch that she made over and over again. Just looking at her, I was exhausted. And I remember her saying, you know... I couldn't do this, or maybe it was her her sort of father figure who was there saying, we couldn't do that if we tried. And it's true. We couldn't do it if we tried. Yeah. But it was very hard. faking it. Exactly. Like, it was hard for her, I think, to differentiate between this being something mental and faking it. In other words, to sort of spell that out to her, um, I think to her would have implied that I thought she was faking it. And I didn't think she was faking it. So 
I really tried to write it in a way that was sympathetic and respectful of why the people who were suffering the symptoms believed the cause of it, while making clear that I probably felt it was something other than, you know, an actual clinical medical condition. Yeah, the details kind of, they pile up over time. That's sort of what I was hoping for. Yeah. Yeah. There's a nice analogy. I think one of the, you quote someone saying it's like, it's like migraines or like comparing it to migraines in a sense. It's like a real phenomenon that could be driven by things that have happened in your life. That was the neurologist who used that language. And I think it was extremely, just as it was made sense for you, it was really helpful for a lot of the young women. And and most of them did eventually come around themselves. That story was really hard for me. I was very worried about writing and naming and photographing teenage girls who were Mm -hmm. having mental problems. Like, is this something that we do, you know? Um, And I had a lot of um, real, like, wrestling over it. um, And... When the piece ran, the neurologist got in touch with me to say, I think this piece was really healthy for the town because she felt like the facts sort of added up to something that everybody could agree on once they saw them all laid out. And it was incredibly kind of her to say so, but she felt like it was only helpful for the girls in the end. Mm-hmm. Um, so that assuaged a lot of my concerns. You know, I I would never seek to write about young girls who are dealing with mental problems That said, I did feel like the record needed to be corrected because there was so much in the media suggesting that it was environmental. And I remember even interviewing a pretty well-known neurologist about it and him saying to me, like, well, I wouldn't underestimate, you know, poisonous chemicals and pollution. It really could be making a difference. And I just thought, or even colleagues of mine at the time, like, well, what do you think it was? Was it the spill? Was it the oil? You know, and I just felt like the hysteria needed to kind of uh, about the environment. I mean, there's an, obviously it's appropriate to be concerned about the environment, right. but only when it's accurate. Right. So I felt a little more comfortable doing that story after that. And when you when you get into those when you're very you get very concerned about the outcome of the story or the how do you get through that? Are there people that you always talk to to try to resolve that and bounce it off them or like once it's going to press or well like in the process? I think of in the it? process of writing more. Yeah. I mean, I still turn. I mean, obviously, I I have huge respect for the staff at the Times Magazine. Lauren Kern edited that story, and um, she was incredibly patient with me about it all. And um, I still talk to Ariel. You know, she's a dear friend of mine, Ariel Kaminer, um, about those stories. And Jody Rudoran was my editor when I wrote uh, the Big City column. I generally call her and bounce things off of her. Um, But a lot of it is just... I often I'm <laughs> I'm often very anxious after a story goes to press about some terrible outcome that I think is going to happen or something horrible that I got wrong. I might call Jennifer Senior and make her hold my hand while I freak out about something I'm feeling guilty or worried about. Has it that worry ever has it ever come to pass? That what that the that the, something... the horrible thing you were worried about actually happens the day the story lands X. Um, that you're worried about. I would. I wrote a piece about Eve Ensler, who is an amazing visionary and a leader. Um, and it, but it was a pretty honest piece about how challenging it can be, basically, or, to be around a visionary, you know, mm-hmm. or somebody who dreams big, or somebody who's like a larger than life personality. Um, it was very much a profile, a personality profile. It wasn't just about how effective she was. It was also about the things that I found, um, and that I think people generally can find challenging around huge personalities. You know, you you worry that that person's going to really think you're terrible. And in fact, all through the writing of the piece, I kept saying, 
Because one of her qualities is that she's an incredibly bonding, warm person. Mm -hmm. And I kept wanting to get to be part of the fight and part of the cause. And I kept saying, now, you know, Eve, I'm I'm, you know, I'm writing about you. I'm not actually your friend. You know, but then when you say that to people, guess what? They start to like it annoys them. (laughs) And then that sort of can it can change the whole experience if you talk about it too much. You know what I mean? You feel this ethical obligation to 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 make sure that they're not tricking them. Yeah, exactly. But then they can sort of alienate them at the same time and worry them. And then they get annoyed with you. And, you know, being a reporter, it's like it's you can be annoying to people. And so you don't always know if you're getting the right version of them. <laughs> um, you're like, they're trying to do their job and you're reporting and interrupting and asking questions and you're just there all the time. It's exhausting. It took me a while to realize it's exhausting for people to be shadowed by a reporter. Even if they're just <laughs> yeah. living their normal life, the, the energy it takes to know that every word you're saying is being noted. How is it being perceived? So now I try to be sensitive to that and give people lots of time, downtime with, without me being there or, you know, at least realize if they're getting touchy that that's a natural part of the process and that it's not I shouldn't take it personally that they have a right to start to to need some space you know that kind of thing yeah well let's uh I want to go back and just finish how you got to to where you are today because you mentioned the big city column for the times what was the period in which you were doing how long was that period was it weekly I was looking back and trying to figure out if it was weekly or like bi-weekly or even more frequent. There are a lot of them. So yeah, it was twice a week. So what happened is I was freelancing. I was a full-time freelancer doing quite nicely as a freelancer. At that time, you really could. I mean, I had a contract with Lammer. I had a contract with the, with New York. And eventually, I had a contract with the Times Magazine. But I also wrote a lot for the Telegraph of London, which used to pay incredibly well. And then they started paying less well. And I saw the world was changing. And uh, my friend Jody Rudorin was um, a deputy metro editor, and they were looking to hire a new columnist. And I'd actually sent her some story ideas um, for a column that I was thinking about pitching to the home section. And she really liked the memo and said, you know, maybe you should apply for a job at the metro section, Mm -hmm. which I did. And it was a long and arduous process. I knew I was heading into a real challenge, you know, to be writing a column twice a week. I, I didn't know how challenging it would be, but um, and I had these young kids. It was a very intense time in my life, I have to say. But what was what was the purview of because this column is basically it's just about New York, like New Yorkers and New York, and it's everything from a taxi driver on his first day to like a guy at a fruit stand who disappears and turns turns out he's detained by immigration. I mean, there's just like a huge, huge range. And so, what did they say to you? Go find stories about New York. Is that, is that no? It? They said to me. Try to create a consistent uh, tone and purview for your column, um, a goal at which I miserably <laughs> failed. I mean, I really I think we all spent a lot of time trying to figure out what it was supposed to be. You uh-huh. know, I mean, I think I think the idea was, look, this isn't a pink ghetto, but, you know, you are a woman. Is there a woman's perspective that you can bring to this? In retrospect, we probably should have just ignored that conversation altogether and, and just tried to think about what would suit my um, skill set the best. Oh. Did you feel confined by even the fact that that was sort of like mentioned as part of the? No, it goal? felt comfortable to me yeah. to some degree. I mean, I was really interested in reporting on um, you know things for better or for worse considered traditionally female. You know, such as um, education, schools, children, and I was a very new mom at the time, so I think I really did enjoy you know I, you know reporting on um, you know as a. Ginny Belafonte might call it the cupcake wars and things like that. (laughs) But uh, I mean, my favorite column was a very small story about some people who lived in a uh, in public housing. I think it's actually the same public housing project where Sotomayor grew up. But anyway, it was just about this 
these two people who lived in this project and one of them was disabled and one of them uh, was just a sort of mouthy, funny woman. And they had this kind of contentious relationship. They weren't actually related, but he lived nearby and she kind of looked after him a little bit without either of them ever being willing to admit that she did help and look. He was very proud. And there was a fire in the building and he died. And so I went and I interviewed her about their relationship and she was, a you know, I mean, she was just one of these people who no one would ever know to be a truly great person, but really, really was. And she was a great storyteller. And he was, a you know, a fascinating, very strong guy who died very sadly. So anyway, there was something about that column that I, I really loved. And it was just very small and very intimate um, and very much about a corner of New York that I hoped readers would, um, the classic New York Times reader might not immediately identify with. And yet yeah. I would hope that they would really connect to those people and to that story. From reading all those columns, the one thing I gather is that you, not knowing you before, that from your columns, you seem to talk to people really easily. Like there are columns, one of my favorites was about a guy that you're on the subway with him and he finds out that Michael Jackson died and he sort of oh, asks yeah, you about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It seems from those columns like you have the ability to just strike up conversations with people and that that those don't generate ready-made magazine stories, but that once you're into a story, you can very easily sort of find your way around it. Uh, I, I'm, I'm an extremely curious person, I would say. And like, you know, from the beginning, you know, the idea that you would get paid to ask people the questions that you are dying to ask them anyway and would have no reason to ask them otherwise is what makes being a reporter such an incredibly fun job. Uh, so I am, I think maybe it is easy for me to talk to people because I feel emboldened by the fact that I have um, the professional reason to justify my questions, but also I'm quite curious to begin with. So I, I really, I mean, I love that part of the job for sure. The last thing that was funny about those Big City columns is that you were the subject of a gawker story that is unlike any gawker story I've ever seen which you may or may not remember, but I will read you the title of it. Kidding? It's just called <laughs> Susan Dominus is the Best. That's the title of the story on Gawker, which is perhaps singular, especially about like a media writer who's writing about things that had the potential to annoy people. It's just about how they love your columns. Well, I, I was on my way to pick up my kids at the babysitter when somebody sent me a link to that story. And I'm not kidding. I literally thought I was hallucinating. I thought that the <laughs> pixels on my iPhone were rearranging themselves in some way that was going to flatter my delusions and that I was completely like out of my mind. I couldn't believe what I was reading. That's yeah. It was a funny How moment. do you top that? Really, really just <laughs> retired or something yeah, at that point. You know what they say, live by Gawker though, die by Gawker. <laughs> so you can't take it. Did seriously. it come back to bite you later? No, no, uh, I'm just saying. Not yet. <laughs> not yet. Although, you know, I'm sure they have mocked things that I've, I, I know they've mocked things that I've written because I remember a friend emailing me to say like, oh, sorry about the Gawker thing. And I just, I, my skin is too thick at this point, you yeah. know, to really worry about that. Have you had stories that have come in for the kind of, I mean, we had, I don't know if you know Amanda Hess, but we had her on and she had written yeah. the same story for for Pacific Standard that was just about, you know, be, both being stalked and sort of like the everyday vitriol that oh. comes your way. So does that find its way to you after you know, the I, kinds of pieces you do? I once wrote a column for big, the big for Big City that I do now see as like a completely stupid column. But it was 
I almost don't want to like tell you what it was about because it was so dumb. But it was a it was a very much a parenting column, and it was sort of about like the kind of way that a day at the a park in New York City can kind of turn ugly when the way that dads and their sons are like sort of competitively throwing ice balls or whatever. It was you know mm-hmm. it, it hardly merited um, the eight hundred words that I spent on it. But I was you know the tongue lashings that I got from people online were really like you know along I mean it was the time so I'm sure they weren't even letting in the really harsh stuff but there were some very right. nasty comments I think what smarted were the comments that you know rang true but the ones that don't don't tend to bother me and just because I write mostly for the times and I guess I think they must edit out the comments that would sound like the ones that Amanda Hess received I haven't really received that sort of um, aggression and I didn't write enough for Nerve that I would have either. And I think I don't remember a lot of those posts getting by on Nerve either. Yeah, I almost wonder if that was like a somewhat gentler time. It was a gentler time. It was, there was no Twitter, obviously. There was, I don't think there was even Facebook at that point. It was just a different, yeah, it was a different world for yeah. sure. But now, now you're writing, you have like a pretty wide diversity of uh, pieces you've done in the last couple years for the Times Magazine. And uh, I'm really interested in the. Uh, I almost want to go ahead and talk about the Daniel Radcliffe one because that was so much fun. Uh, but we'll just save that because I think the conjoined twins piece. A lot of people uh, talked about that when it came out. I know Longform posted it, and I feel like there was a lot of response to that piece. And how did that come about? That came about thanks to the good graces of God love him, Joel Lovell, who um, had, also been on this podcast. We're, uh, we're, we're as really well as hitting he should the, be. Uh, yeah. He uh, saw a blib about. It. I think that guy reads. I mean, obviously, he reads everything and retains everything. And uh, we were at a dinner party, and he was talking to my husband and saying, "Well, I'm trying to sign this piece." And Alan was like, "I think I know just who should write that piece." Um, Alan being my husband. <laughs> so uh, I got the assignment, and um, I was so nervous that I would get all the way to this family's home, which was such a haul across the country into a town, I don't know, several hours' drive from Vancouver, and really find they were too young. So the, what this story was about was about these conjoined twins who were joined um, at their temples, basically. And they, because of the way their heads were conjoined, they were thought uh, by their neurologists to share some neural matter such that when such that they shared some sensory impressions and possibly even shared consciousness, which is you know a very mind blowing idea. So they were yeah. as much like one person as any two people have ever been known to be in the history of the universe, the of recorded history at least. So I was afraid that they were going to be too young for any of those phenomena to be evidenced by their behavior or speech. But as soon as I got there, it was incredibly obvious. I mean, they were speaking in unison all the time. Just the way they moved was fascinating. And, and it was very clear that one would eat something and the other one would taste it. It was obvious. I mean, they, you know, one would like, gu- you know, guzzle her bottle and the other one would put her hand to her tummy and go, whoa. You know, it was very – and they would do it as a joke for fun. It was it was wild. Yeah. And so in, 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 in reading the story, I wondered if this was mimicked, sort of mirrored your reaction. Like at the beginning, I feel like when you say conjoined twins, when the lead, you don't really know they're conjoined until a certain point and then you say it. And then I feel like as a reader, you're sort of like, oh, no, that must be terrible. Or you know, there's sort of like a you feel bad for them. But then by three paragraphs later, you're it's more like wonder. You know, you're sort of like, wow, they have this incredible 
connection. But not only that, they also have this sort of perhaps unique conscious connection. You know, a lot of people told me they didn't read the story because they found the picture so disturbing. Oh, and, really? Yeah. And I was really, it was it was fascinating to me because I, in each instance, I wanted to say to them, if you met them for five minutes, you would not feel that way. I mean, we went out in public. They were staying at a hotel because they were going to a doctor nearby. And they were running up and down the hall, just like, you know, every other six-year-old kid does at a hotel. And people would do a double take and they'd have this, you could see their whole emotional process. They'd have this look of concern. They'd be uncomfortable. By the third time the girls ran by giggling, they were smiling back at them. They were really, um, and and I mean, I know this is going to sound hokey, but in a way, these girls. I also, you know, spoke to people. There were many people in the comments who said things that, oh, this these these children should never have been born. It was it was fascinating. Mm. I mean, they had an extremely whatever quality of life issues they had were related mostly to um, being in a family that seemed maybe overwhelmed by the number of kids that were there and not having uh, not maybe reaching out to the kinds of resources they needed, but. I mean, these girls adored each other. They adored their family. They were very happy children who were living a completely worthwhile life, maybe one even elevated beyond that we can imagine in the sense that they have a kind of closeness that we can't imagine or is sort of some people's ideal. Yeah. Even the the siblings would sort of talk about how they they wanted a twin or they like they felt like the twins were somehow special in a way that they couldn't be because they didn't have that relationship that they had or that's yeah they created a, a longing for an ideal double and I think actually a lot of sing, uh, singletons who have twin siblings feel some version of that mm-hmm. and this is just a really really extreme version so in terms of your your being there how much time did you spend with them I spent I think between five and seven days I can't remember it might have been seven days um, but I slept at the house one night mm-hmm. which I think now is a funny choice and um we traveled to Vancouver together. Maybe we met up in Vancouver. So I actually was able to attend some of their doctor's appointments, which was incredible. Um, and I just really tried to observe, you know, try to, it was one of those moments where you just try to, um, I interacted with the girls a lot. And we did do some very, um, I was very fortunate to be working with Stephanie Sinclair, another amazing photographer. And we did some very um, stylized kind of quasi tests, you know, close one girl's eyes, hold a duck up in front of the other one, a stuffed duck, and say to the first one, what's Sissy looking at? You know, and she'd say duck. I mean, I, I wouldn't, you know, publish them in a medical journal, not, but they were controlled they were that controlled studies, but they were fairly fascinating to us. But I also tried to do just a lot of hanging out with them so that I would sort of um, spontaneously witness things like that. Or just, I mean, I just remember being at dinner um, with the kids and one of them liked was it chicken nuggets and the other one didn't and one of them started eating a chicken nugget or whatever this particular food was and the other one started crying and like clawing at her own tongue and then trying to hide under the table you know she was trying to get away from this oneness and it was incredibly powerful and painful and you know Vanessa Gregoriadis is an old colleague of mine from New York and we both talked about this phenomenon of a lot of reporting is really just hanging around and not going home until something interesting happens Um, so sometimes it's just putting in the hours and and just being there and you know it's it's you hang around long enough until that moment occurs did that family welcome that kind of attention they had obviously gotten attention 
before, but it also seemed like, and on the one hand, they seemed like they didn't want to turn them into, you know, this is not a freak show. But on the other hand, they were negotiating to maybe do a reality show exactly. because they needed money. They did need money. And also, in their defense, I think that it would have normalized the girls to the world. I think it would have been mm. a really... I. I know people think it would have been sensationalist and horrible and objectifying, but I actually think they were so sweet and adorable and in many ways normal that it would have been good for them and it would have paved their entrance into the world wherever they go. Um, so I, I really didn't think it was a bad idea personally, but that's probably why they did co- cooperate with the articles. I think they were trying to sell a reality TV show and thought that the, they had a manager, hmm. um, a very showbiz, showbiz manager. And he was, yeah, he was, that's definitely part of his, that was part of his agenda. And did uh, do you keep up with them, or do you know? I where did they for are a now? little while on Facebook. I still um, Louise is the grandmother, and she and I were exchanging messages on Facebook. And I probably should follow. I would like to follow up and see how the girls are doing. I mean, I definitely have seen, you know, the girl their health their per- their health is not perfect. I mean, one of the girls' heart is doing a lot of work for the two of them. I mean, they both have hearts, obviously, but some of the burden falls more on one than the other. And um, but mostly, I, I know enough to know that their health seems stable and good for now. And then not not that long after that, let's see, you did that one in, I think, 2011, and then the cheerleader epidemic story in 2012. And then later in 2012, you did this Wall Street story, which struck me as mm-hmm. a different, you know, in some ways, from what you'd done before. And yeah. I'm curious what, what caused you to kind of veer into that type of story, which is like very much gets into derivatives and, you know, trading and bonds and interest rates and it's it's pretty heavy on the financial. It was scary as hell. Um, what happened? What got me interested in that was um, Jill Abramson telling me to do it. <laughs> oh, really? So hey, there's uh, nothing like that to get someone. Yeah, interested I got really in interested. Thank God, my brother had done very much this kind of work, and I mean, there's no one other than one's own brother who would be willing to spend that much time on the phone explaining to you what a you know complex derivative is and he really did i think i've forgotten it all i'm sorry andrew but at the time i really could tell you all these things i almost thought i understood the financial crisis but um it was it was an amazing experience i learned so much about i mean it was it was a huge challenge i bit off more than i thought i could chew Hugo was really patient with me. He gave me a lot of time. This is Hugo Lindgren. Who yeah, was a, who was the editor at the, at the Times, Times magazine. magazine. Yeah, because it's also kind of a it's a write around. It's about this woman who was, uh, you know, lost her job as a result of the this huge trade that that lost J.P. Morgan a huge amount of money. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, but she didn't want to cooperate. So it was in addition to being about all these financial issues that you hadn't covered before, you had to find all of these colleagues and other people who would talk on and off the record. Because she wouldn't talk. Yeah. Her name is Ina Drew. And I think a lot of former colleagues of hers probably spoke to me with her tacit consent because mm. she wanted to rehabilitate. I mean, all anybody, she was a very private woman. She was one of the most you know, powerful women on Wall Street. But all anybody really knew about her was that she'd been fired and was responsible for this huge financial screw up that cost the bank its reputation and untold millions. So people wanted to get out that she'd been a leader. She'd been a mentor. Many young people who worked for her. I mean, I, this is... A, I, I loved this detail in the story. I mean, I called two women who had worked for her, um, young women, and they both said exactly the same thing before hanging up the phone, which was, I think it was, she was fabulous, and they hung up. You know, even oh, yeah, that that's was, in the story. Even that, they were like, they didn't want to say more. It was like, oh, you know, people are in banking are so uptight. But anyway, I couldn't, I was having a really hard time getting inside the scandal and what happened there, and I spent all summer calling everyone, you know, just like, calling people on their cell phones and, you know, July 4th weekend, you know, whatever. I mean, just 
trying so hard. You know, when you're reporting about on a bank, you really have two hours a day in which you can report because you can't call them at the bank because mm-hmm. um, the phone calls are recorded. So you have to call them at home. But nobody's really home before seven, and they eat at seven. You don't want right. to call them after ten, right? Because then they're in bed. It's late. It's inappropriate. They think you're insane. You really have between eight and nine thirty to make those phone calls. Huh. So that was like a very tense time for me every night, just like dialing, 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 and um, finally. I'll never forget. Like, and you know, you call the same people over and over again. You leave messages. You try to explain why you think it would be in their interest to talk to you. And then, late, I'd been reporting it all summer, and finally, Labor Day weekend, somebody called me back who had really been quite inside the story and mm-hmm. started talking to me. I couldn't believe it. I could not believe it. So I had a much better handle on what went wrong and who the players were and why things went down, and was able to confirm that. You know, once you have the lay of the land, you can then go back to the other people, you know, and say, "Well, just make sure I'm not getting this wrong," and they'll confirm it. Or yeah, yeah. Tweak it a little bit, that kind of thing. And are you a person who who writes the piece as you go? Or? As I'm reporting it, you yeah. mean? No, no, no. You do people do that? Do you do that? I no, I I don't do that. Although I I always sort of aspire to. I I read this like an interview with Brian Burroughs. Uh-huh. Who I don't I don't. We we should have him on the podcast actually, where he described doing that. Like every day, he comes home and not just not just types up his notes, but actually writes like 500 words of what. A version uh, of what happened today. Well, you know, I should you know? I should say that, like, I remember when I was writing, reporting the twins story, there were some things that I witnessed that I knew were going to go into the story. And I did go home to the hotel at night and write them up as I thought they would be used in the magazine. And what's great about that kind of writing is that you are not feeling pressure and you're not feeling self-conscious. You're just doing it for the pleasure of it because it happened. It was amazing. And you want to get it down. So that's a great experience when you're inspired to do that. But with that Ina Drew story, I didn't even know what the story was until the end. So yeah. I, I didn't know how to write it. Yeah, it's much harder in that type of where you're sort of like gathering little string, pulling at little strings all the time because there's yeah. nothing to write until one of them actually comes out. Yeah. But did you afterwards feel like you, you know, I'm done with Wall Street. I, I don't want to do this again or I can I'll build on this. And, and I wish I had built on it. It took so much out of me at the time. And I think everybody was worried that it would just that, that they were going to take me so long. But I mean, now that we're having this conversation, I do feel like I would maybe like to return to it. It's a great piece. Thank you. And Michael Lewis is my absolute idol, you know, so um, I love his books. So, and you know, I came from the American Lawyer, where that was like, that's a lot of financial reporters came out of there. So in a way, that thing of calling 100 people, like I had done various versions of that at the American Lawyer, you know, we would spend hours just trying to figure out what partner compensation was at a given law firm, you know? So that thing where you take a list of 20 names and just go through them, I, you know, there's something kind of familiar about that. And it feels really like, gumshoe and you're you know you're doing the thing and yeah, it's um, relentless yeah just dialing and dialing dialing and dialing yeah um and you know it's like yeah and, and getting hung up on and being told you're a piece of dirt and you know all that fun <laughs> stuff <laughs> and then you dial the next name so um you i don't, don't get know. your vitriol online you get it in person i get or it on the phone yeah exactly it's just like that like just wet clammy feeling when someone's told you that you know they think you're a piece of dirt but uh, I, I would like to do another financial story, actually, now that we mention it. Yeah. But but instead, you did a, uh, a sort of celebrity profile. And I love this story. This is, this is one of my favorite stories in Times Magazine over the past few years. Which one? The Daniel Radcliffe oh, story. Oh, really? Yeah. Just because it's, it's a celebrity profile, I'm fascinated with celebrity profiling because I've never done it. And just the idea of taking someone who has been written about a million times and saying, like, okay, how do I find anything that's different than 
what someone else has done. And I feel like a lot of people love this profile because it was, it's almost like an anti, it's like about Daniel Radcliffe, Harry Potter, uh, trying to like outrun his fame somehow, mm-hmm, trying to like mm-hmm. prove that he's talented enough to deserve his fame. Yeah. Did you know that's what the piece was going to be about no, when you went in? No, no, we had no idea. No, I mean, I'm telling you, with any of these pieces, I have no idea what they're going to be when you go in. You give like somebody says, you have the Daniel Radcliffe story, and then you pray that he, you know, he's the least bit interesting in some way. I mean, in a story like that, I think I did spend six days with him, which sounds not not steadily, but yeah. on and off, which is the first celebrity profile in this day and age, like you know, a, lot. a lot. But even still, the I was sweating it the entire time because very subtle things were happening and I you know just wasn't sure I could sort of make anything of it and I was having very few kind of intimate or um, unkind of canned moments that's a lot of me observing him as he did press conference after junket after junket kind of thing mm-hmm. so it was really nerve-wracking I mean I was you know it was it was I was in Venice I was in London it should have been fabulous but it was extremely stressful and you're doing a celebrity profile so you feel like I, I kept watching people trying to get something from this poor young man, you know, who couldn't say no to anybody and everybody wanted something from him. And I was inevitably the next person in line. You know, I wasn't yeah. asking for his autograph, but I was trying to get a moment of realness from him or something, <laughs> you know. So it was it was very uncomfortable. I, I think I don't know. Does everybody talk about how uncomfortable reporting is or Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's uncomfortable. It's unnatural, right? A lot of a lot of what you're doing. Yeah, both the time you're spending. I mean, I feel like a lot of people talk about the sort of befriending someone versus you know how close do you get to them and how do you you're trying to make them feel comfortable right they're not your friend right you know some people i think on on one extreme just say you do befriend them and then later you're sitting in front of your laptop and it's your chance to describe what happened and you forget that you were ever friends and the other people are on the other end of trying to like remind them like hey trying to let you know that i want you to be candid but also like i don't want you to forget that i'm a reporter I mean, somebody just once said to me, look, you just have to, like, assume that all the rules that you know to be true of journalism, like, well, if they didn't say it's off the record, then it's not off the record. Like, that you know those rules, but the person you're interviewing never does. And so you just have to sort of really, whatever it is that you end up writing, you just have to keep in mind their perspective on what that on what was happening in that conversation, not mm-hmm. what you think should have been happening in that conversation. Yeah. Well, with Daniel Radcliffe, it was kind of like, it was, it was kind of heartbreaking to see. I mean, normally you come out of a celebrity profile thinking like, okay, well, this this person has a pretty good, pretty good life. Fame is not as easy maybe as you think it is. But he, you were really like inside this gilded cage. Yes. And looking out at these thousands, millions of people who just want something from this guy who, as you say, like he can't say no and he feels bad all the time. He can't give them what they want. And I feel like I've I've not seen that in another... I really did sympathize with him. I really, you know, people always say sort of crimey river celebrities who complain about, you know, whatever it is they complain about. But it was extraordinarily hard work and he was incredibly generous. And there was almost this sort of um, the feeling of being grabbed at. People literally grabbed at him. I mean, you know, I I wrote about it in the piece. There was a moment when a journalist stood up and kind of moved towards Daniel. And Daniel, being the gentleman that he is, reached his hand out to shake his hand and instead the reporter went in, put his arm around Daniel and took a selfie. I mean, it was just the manhandling of that. You know, it's it's not everybody wants to be touched all the time or hugged all the time or have their picture taken all the time. And I just I remember at the end of one of the days of reporting with him, I went back to my, you know, incredibly 
crappy hotel in some poor like neighborhood of Venice and uh, ate a gelato alone and thought about how incredibly lucky I was. I felt so <laughs> awesome at that moment. I was so happy to be away. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Just because you could walk down the street by yourself and... Yeah. And, and not think for a moment that anybody cared at all. And that's, I actually once did a story about Maggie Chung, who's the, she's sort of the Julia Roberts of China, which is to say she's more huge than Julia Roberts. I mean, whoever, or I don't know who the contemporary Julia Roberts is, but um, she spent a lot of time in America because she's practically anonymous here. Whereas in China, I mean, it's like a huge storm of people wherever she goes. It is a very strange existence. Yeah. And you did a, you did a Venus Williams profile once too, and she seemed to have some of the same quality I felt like of the Daniel Radcliffe one was just trying to like outrun Oh Serena ways. Serena Serena Williams Oh really Serena I don't remember I don't remember that that's yeah. interesting yeah. yeah well she was trying to get in to prove that her life wasn't all about tennis that's what I sort of took Oh away I from see that yeah profile. she definitely was the same was. way that Daniel Radcliffe was trying to prove that he could really act Yes know? he yes. was just sort of like given this this thing he yeah he had, he had terrible fear of being a husband he basically saw that he had great potential to end up like a you know kind of a macaulay culkin figure who is the butt of jokes and you know people assumed like you know he just lucked into a role and would never go anywhere and it he really uh i mean you know when he was like 10 years old directors were making jokes and in interviews like well he'll either end up drunk or on drugs by the time he's 18 whatever it was you know and some of that of course did turn out to be true he did have huge problems with alcohol uh but he was very haunted by other people's expectations of his impending failure, for sure. Now, for that type of for that piece, is that one that you ever hear from? You ever hear from him to say, "No, like, you got it." No, <laughs> no, no. Actually, he did. Um, very. He's such a sweet guy that when the fact checking was happening, there was one way of uh, me characterizing him that he did go out of his way to text me and say. That's perfect. That's exactly how I think about things. I mean, he's such a sweetheart. Um, but it's not like so. I, I do have to say, it was even for me, it was kind of a thrill to have a text from Daniel Radcliffe on my phone. But I, uh, I have withheld. I've refrained from texting him regularly with updates about you know my fascinating life. <laughs> you could develop a real friendship. I mean, it's funny. I, I, I never have kept. I don't. People ask me sometimes. Oh, do you keep up with the people you report on? Yeah, yeah. You, and I, um, I actually am always curious about other reporters. I just really tend not to, even when there is a kind of personal connection. I mean, Daniel just couldn't. He meets a million journalists every week. Like, there's no way that any of them are that distinct. I don't think. But I, I, I have this thing. I feel like when I'm done with a story, somehow I'm done. It's strange. Yeah, that's how. That's how I feel and it for me is partly the uh the energy that it takes that you described before which i think is true on both ends i mean you are interested in the person but you have to be way more interested than you would be in any other person besides <laughs> maybe your spouse or something or children so i think once that's over for me like you're saying the, the person who's being profiled is kind of like exhausted but you're probably also exhausted and don't want to sort of revisit that necessarily. It's sort of like I remember hanging out with them. I, I was I used to work out with a personal trainer, and like in, in our sessions, she was in, like one of the most energetic, amazing people I'd ever encountered. And then we would hang out socially, and also like it was all about me. So everything was so fun. It was how do I feel today, and how many like pushups can you do? So, and then we'd interact socially, and yes, there was I, I was like, what's missing from this social interaction? And of course, it wasn't all about me anymore. And I think I have had that feeling as well that when I've spent time with people whom I've profiled. I do sometimes wonder if they're feeling like, 
why isn't she asking so many questions about me anymore? You know, it's a different dynamic. It is, yeah. yeah, it's an artificial relationship that you build up. I thought we were friends. All she she was asking me everything about she my life. She seems so. She thought she really got me, man. You know, she really understood how special I am. Do you have designs on on either sort of like heading down a particular path of a collection of stories that are all on one topic, or writing a book, or are you content to sort of like play the field of story ideas and and move from these, you know? Little celebrity profile, little Wall Street. I don't have a good answer to that. <laughs> and that is definitely a problem. I write a lot about, like, you can assign me anything, and it will often turn out to be a story about family. You know, mm-hmm. like, like you can assign me a story about, you know, I was assigned a story that was called, uh, we ended up calling it Life in the Age of Old, Old Age. And it was about um, the science of life extension, mm-hmm. but also about some kind of canary in the coal mines. In other words, families where like the grandmother lived to be 103 and what that did to her 83-year-old son. Oh. Um, and, you know, who kept waiting, expect, you know, people sometimes put their lives on hold in certain ways. But other than that, I'm really tormented by it. I keep waiting for an idea to come to me. I mean, I, I, the, the thing is that I actually report enough to write a book often. I over-report. Uh-huh. And yet somehow once you've like s- written the magazine story, it's hard for me to then go back and and then like the allergy story I did, a lot of people thought I should turn that into a book. I, you know, there's a story I'm working on right now that I know I have enough material that I could probably turn it into a book. But I just, I feel I should do a book, but I guess I seem to just really enjoy magazine form i'm i'm grappling with it believe me (laughs) well uh, it seems to be going well from what i can tell so a book would be nice though yeah it does seem like to be i'd like to teach at some point actually i really like teaching and um i don't think you get to do that unless you have a couple of books under your belt so all right well thank you very much for coming on the podcast thank you for having me i appreciate it and uh we should say that you have a big piece coming out in the new york times magazine but we don't want to talk about it because we don't know exactly when it's going to going to come out but we'll definitely link to it thank you i appreciate it that would be great all right thank you yeah thank you Thanks for listening to the Longform Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff, uh, the co-host and interviewer this week. Uh, thanks to Sue Dominus for uh, driving down to Brooklyn to join the podcast. And thanks especially to our editor, Jenna Weiss-Berman. Thanks to our intern, Sarah Button, and our sponsor, Tiny Letter. And we will see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.